welcome everyone to the uh, the next edition of the Austrian AV Club. This is Redmond Weisenberger, and I'm speaking today with uh, Stefan Kinsella of uh, StefanKinsella.com and the Center for the Stateless Society. Um, and I just want to put out a, a call uh, right now. Mises Canada is looking for writers uh, to tackle Canadian intellectual property issues. Um, you know, we've got a, we've got one or two people up here in Canada who are who are working on these things. But we'd like to get more uh, more people out of the Canadians, Americans, you know, legal scholars, whatever, sort of looking at how the Canadian um, legal system deals with intellectual property, because we have some similar points and we have some different points. Uh, so I think it'd be interesting to, to get some feedback on that. But uh, let's get right into this uh, today. Um, I sort of had a few questions for you myself, Stefan, or Stefan. And I wanted to talk about the idea of, uh, of corporations and limited liability corporations, because I understand there is some sort of discussion around the idea. I mean, number one, where where does a corporation come from? You know, because there was that big movie that came out a couple of years ago that was called, you know, the corporation. And it was corporations are evil and they're people, but they're not people. And, you know, and then because there's corporations, then there's limited liability corporations. And, and what's the functional difference? What's the history of the two of them? Uh, could you speak to that a bit? Um, sure. This is an issue I've thought about for uh, a number of years, and it's like a lot of other issues uh, like intellectual property or others in that um, it takes a while to sort out kind of a common sense view of things. I mean, mm -hmm. if you have libertarian impulses, then you you're, you're going to be suspicious of something that you view as a creature of the state. And mm -hmm. a lot of left libertarians, for example, view limited liability as a privilege granted by the state, which is not um, something that would prevail on a free market or in the free society. So they think mm -hmm. as a distortionist, they, they come to oppose corporations and limited liability statutes. And I'll explain in a second um, what, they, what that means. Um, but I think the problem is their analysis is, 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 is cloudy because, number one, they often have, a, um, they often have a, um, an uninformed view of what the law actually is. I, actually, I find this among lawyers as well who mm -hmm. are not specialists in this area. They have a lot of misconceptions about what the law means. Um, and number two, they blend it with their sort of leftist hostility towards capitalism or things that we would call capitalist, and it, it gets cloudy. Yeah. So the way I look at it is um, is, is this. Um, the, the current system is clearly distorted by the state and unjust, but the question is – what would arise on a free market and how close is our current incorporation scheme to that? So what happens now is under the law, if you incorporate, then the law recognizes the corporation as what's called a legal entity or a legal person, Yeah. yeah. which in a way is just a convenience, right? If you sue someone for contract breach, you sue in the name of the company. Or if someone wants to sue you for contract breach, they sue the corporation. I don't see mm -hmm. anything that's unlibertarian about that because you could see, you know, five people get together, pool their resources, they form a company, and they have a name, and they have a contract with someone for a lease, let's say. So let's say Mises Canada has five employees or five shareholders or whatever. Now, you're not for profit, but anyway. Um, and you have a lease with a 
with a building, you need you need an office. So you sign a lease. Now this is a, a contract. So there are two parts of limited liability. You can think of the contractual limited liability and liability for other things that are not contracted for, which is called torts. Okay. For contractual liability, uh, I think there is no problem at all for libertarian theory. Um, there is a, a great book, I think it was written in the 70s by Robert Hessen called In Defense of the Corporation, and I think it's sort of the defining work on this whole thing. He basically mm -hmm. explodes the myths. Basically, his view and my view and Rothbard's view and the view of other libertarians like Roger Pallon and Randy Barnett uh, and others is that you do not need the state to have something that's like a corporation. You basically mm -hmm. just need – you need two things. You need to have the right to have a contract. So if five people are investors in a firm – I don't care what you call it, a firm um, – and they borrow money from a bank. Or from someone, from some investor, or for some lender, then if that investor agrees to loan money to the firm, then he's agreeing that he can only go after the assets of that enterprise in case of bankruptcy or inability to pay the debt. So that's purely contractual. Okay, so I don't see how any libertarian would have a problem with that aspect of limited liability. The other aspect says that um, shareholders in the company are not personally liable. For debts of the company, even including tort liability, and some libertarians, like left libertarians, think that this is a privilege granted by the state. But for them to believe that, what what they have to say is that in the natural free market order, someone who's an investor in an in an enterprise is going to be personally liable for torts committed by employees of that enterprise. Now. I would say, first of all, the entire concept of employee is a state category. The only reason we care whether we classify someone as an employee or not is because of state laws that make a difference based upon whether you're an employee or not, whether you're entitled to – whether the whether employer has to with, withhold taxes, um, whether, you know, whether they have to give certain notice requirements upon firing you, etc. In the free market, I don't think there would be a hardcore distinction between – an independent consultant and a contractor and people you have contracts with and do business with and an employee. I mean this basically it would all be the free market, be people supplying services for a price. What you call it would be kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Um, yeah, well you're you're establishing a contract with I establish contract with somebody else, they pay me to provide a service. Right. I mean that's it. Yeah. So whether whether you call it an employee or not wouldn't matter as much. It matters now because the state classifies things and then they treat them differently by different legal rules just like in marriage i mean just to make an analogy right i mean the whole mar gay marriage debate is based upon the fact that it, it, the state uh, has rules that classify people differently based upon whether they're officially married or not by the state's classifications well yeah that's and that's what i would say that's what i often point out i said the whole point is that the state shouldn't be why do why do we require the state to grant us this status it's a what it's really about is being granted certain people want to be granted the same privileges or entitlements that other people are granted when they enter into this you know legal relationship that's approved by the state right so yeah I mean, yeah and, and if if the state wasn't involved in marriage then no one would really care whether you – there would not be an official classification of marriage. There would be a social recognition. It would be like language. It would be 
what language people would use to describe this person's relationship. And, you know, some, someone down the street might call these two men married. I mean, if they call yeah. themselves married and if everyone recognizes it, then sooner or later people are going to say they're husbands or whatever. But if they don't, yeah. they, they don't. But it wouldn't be an official classification someone has to make a decision about. It would be a natural, organic thing that tracks social well, norms. Well, that's the thing is, and, you know, like with, uh, and yeah, exactly, with religion, you know, the, the Catholic Church marries you. You're married in the eyes of the Catholic Church. Well, I mean, and, and, you know, 200, 300 years ago, you're married if you say you're married. Just two, two people say we're married in, in an official ceremony or in some way that demonstrates it to people, just like a contract. Uh, in any case, we're, we're off track a little bit. But yeah. so, so what limited liability statutes say is that shareholders of the corporation are not personally liable for debts of the company, either contractual debts or debts from other reasons like tort. And number one, most people don't even understand that. Most people that criticize the corporation think that limited liability laws limit the liability of the, of the directors or the officers of the corporation, but they don't. At least uh, the most, they only limit the liability of the shareholders um, who are basically investors in the corporation, or they're basically people that own shares in the corporation. And well, yeah, when when you've got a large, because I think what people complain about is that they see, um, I think you know, especially in the wake of two thousand and eight, you know, they see these guys getting in huge bonuses instead of getting the getting fired. Yes. And what you're saying is that, um, but the problem is, is that when they're talking about limited liability, they're not actually talking about those people who are working for the company. You're talking about, let's say, there's Bank of America. And a million different people own shares yes. in Bank of America. Yes. Those people who own like five shares are not liable for the for the. I mean, if the, if the company goes bankrupt, then they then they their their value of their shares goes to zero. So they're liable in the sense that they lose their they lose their investment. Yeah. So yeah. they're only liable up to that extent. They're not. You can't sue them now. If if a shareholder happens to be a board of a board member of the board of directors or they happen to be uh, the president then they're liable because they did it the, here's the way it works in the common law and right now and probably the way it should work in a, in a free society if a person commits a tort you know like let's say you have a fedex a fedex truck driver and he negligently runs over someone he is actually right. personally liable for doing that just because he's a human being who did an action that harmed someone else. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now to go beyond that, to hold anyone else liable for him, you have to have a reason. That's called uh, vicarious liability or vicarious responsibility. Mm -hmm. So if you want to hold even his employer responsible, because he's not going to have a lot of assets. So let's say he causes five hundred thousand dollars of damage. Where are you going to get the, Where are you going to get your your recovery from? Either insurance. Yeah. Or from someone else who's liable with him. So, because of feudalistic concepts of the master-servant relationship back in you know two, three, four hundred years ago, the master was held to be responsible for the acts of his servant. That's called respondeat superior. Okay. Which is a type of vicarious liability. Now, I think you could probably justify that on libertarian principles, although there's a whiff of almost slavery about it. I mean, you know, it's all there's paternalism. It's like you're saying you're responsible for the acts of your of your children almost. Well, and the, so you're treating these people like children. Yeah, but here let's but let's um because I I agree if if somebody 
is in the employ of, of, let's say you're talking about a FedEx guy and he drives dangerously. I mean, that's his own personal responsibility yes. for driving dangerously. Now, what about the situation where there's a pizza delivery guy and the pizza company has said, we will deliver your pizza in 10 minutes yes. or less. Yes. And, yes. and if you don't deliver that pizza, you're fired. Yes. So, okay. So, so let's back up for a second. So here, here's yeah. the way I would approach it. First of all, you notice I use the word if he's in your employee. So you're sort of latching on to the official categorization of someone as being in your employee. In a free oh. market, you, know, you might be one person that's just a sole proprietor, and you might, instead of having a secretary and a staff, in today's world, you might – you know, send a file on the internet to someone in Sri Lanka to transcribe your files, and you might yeah. call FedEx to deliver something. You might have a bunch of things you, people you outsource things to. They're not technically employees, but they serve yeah. the, they serve the same function. So I think in libertarian theory, you really can't hook anything onto an official category of employment or not because it's just a way of using people in a cooperative endeavor. Yeah. Um, okay, so but in your example. Um, well, even the common law recognizes something called um, if if you're if 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 you know let's let's say you have a FedEx truck driver and he just goes off off track and he goes somewhere where you didn't tell him to go and he and he hurts people. Let's say he commits a crime. I mean, why should the company be responsible for his actions? Because he's using their property. Well, you know, if I if I loan my brother-in-law my car. And he goes on a rampage and starts running over pedestrians because he's psychotic. Why should I be liable for that unless I encouraged him to do it or I knew he was going to do it or something? So mm -hmm. just because someone uses your property to commit a tort or a crime doesn't mean you should be responsible. In the case you describe, you have a board of directors or managers in a company that are directing the activities of this employee like the pizza driver, and they're basically mm -hmm. encouraging him. Are paying him to do something right. reckless that's expected to cause damage. So in that case, I think there's a reason to implicate them, but they're not shareholders. They're the people that directly supervise the employee's actions, and limited liability laws do not exculpate them from liability. Yeah. You can sue them. It's just what happens right now is if someone is damaged by a reckless pizza driver, then the victim sues the corporation… Right, mm -hmm. they probably sue the driver because you have to have someone um, who's directly liable, and then the corporation is res is is liable with them under respondeat superior. You could mm -hmm. you could sue the directors and the and the managers too, but they don't really bother because they just want a deep pocket to go after, and they know that the corporation has the assets, and the corporation is going to have the insurance. And in any case, the corporation will have what's called DNO. Or directors and officers insurance. So even if you sue the directors and officers, and even if you win, then they will be reimbursed or indemnified by the insurance policy. So basically, it all comes down to the assets of the corporation and the insurance policies of the corporation that is implicated with and directly responsible for the negligent actions of the truck driver, uh, who is also going to be liable, by the way, and who's also going to be indemnified by the corporate policies or by the corporate assets or by the insurance. Um, so all the complaints, though, by, say, left libertarians about corporate limited liability are not directed to this because limited liability doesn't stop this. It only indemnifies the shareholders. So the question would be some little lady in Vermont who's invested $1,000 in 
FedEx or, or let's say Domino's pizza stock, why mm -hmm. should she be liable, jointly liable for a million dollars of damage, let's say, to some victim because she gave money to a company who, whose directors chose to adopt a certain policy and hire employees that ended up hurting someone? I, I don't see that she's any more causally responsible than the bank that lends money to them or even the other customers. I mean how about the customer down the street from the victim who bought a yeah. pizza last night, and they gave $10 to Domino's. They gave it to purchase a pizza, but that's money that Domino's can then use to mm -hmm. hire employees. So in other words, if you broaden the causal net wide enough to say that yeah. – that shareholders, by virtue of being shareholders, should be liable, then you implicate almost every other person that does any business with the company at all. Every other employee, every lender, every creditor, every vendor, every supplier. Well, yeah, of course, and, but that's if you if you look at uh, if you look at sort of anti-capitalist and anti-consumerist um, uh, sort of. Um, Protesters. I mean, that's what they try to do when they look at things like Nike, you know. And they they try to they try to tie in the act of purchasing a pair of shoes and saying, okay, well, you're you're responsible for the, you know, you're responsible for the for the the quality or the 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 way that these workers are being treated because you purchase shoes from Nike. You're supporting their treatment of these workers. Yes. You know. You know. Or or, or even now, the uh, the Foxconn iPad Apple thing. Yes. Right. Even though it turned out that that was a, basically a, almost a blatant lie, right. you know what I mean? Well, I, th but. I think there. I mean, there, there's of course there's nothing wrong with social pressure or with yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you know, I mean, this is what drives, excuse me, consumer boycotts. I mean, you know, yeah. if if someone hears that Walmart is or some company is supporting some horrible practice, then there might be a movement for consumers to purchase from a competitor, even though the competitor. Mm -hmm. Presumably has higher prices or less desirable goods. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have to have a movement to switch away. And so uh, there's no, Which, yeah. but there's nothing special about the obligation of Apple as a customer of Foxconn compared to the obligation of an ordinary consumer of Apple's products or products of other companies that do business with Foxconn, et cetera. I mean, this is just a natural uh, market process. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of legal responsibility, I think that we it's, it's almost like liability for uh, for threats, for example. Uh, yeah. if, if I say, you know, I don't like the way you look, and I think in a couple of years I might drive by your house and cause you a problem. You know, that's not a justification for you to reach into your pocket and just blow me away because yeah. it's not what yeah. the law calls an immediate and direct threat. If it's mm -hmm. an immediate and direct threat, you can use self-defense, but it would be a stretch to call your blowing me away self-defense in that case, right? Yeah. And I think you have to have similar um, line drawing in terms of causal responsibility. The, the, the basic line of any libertarian society should be individualism. An individual is responsible for their actions, period. Yeah. And if you want to hold anyone else responsible for that person's actions, you have to have a good reason. Um, so. I've written a whole paper on this. It's uh, with Patrick Tinsley. It's on my website, stephankinsella.com. Uh, Go to the publications mm -hmm. page, and you'll see it's on causation and responsibility uh, under the law. And the idea is that – and it's a Misesian theory. It's looking at the structure of human action, and I do agree that 
So, so let me back up a second. Walter Block, who's one of your um, um, uh, friends, um, mm -hmm. is more of a Rothbardian on this issue. And Rothbard would have said there is no liability for what he calls incitement. Okay, incitement yeah. means if you say, you know, go, everyone, you look at a crowd and you say, go loot, steal, kill, rape, whatever. And if yeah. they go do that, his theory is that they're responsible and you're not. Now, I agree that they're responsible. The direct actor is always responsible unless they're a dupe. Like, for example, if I, if I hire FedEx to deliver a bomb to you and you open the okay. package and it kills you… The FedEx guy didn't know he was delivering a bomb. I say he's actually he maybe he's negligent, but he's not he's not a murderer. But I yeah. am. But in most cases, the the direct actor is responsible. Like if if I'm a mafia boss and I tell my underling, you know, go go kill that guy. Yeah. yeah. If he does it, he's a murderer. Just because I'm also a murderer doesn't mean he's off the hook. You can both be 100% responsible. We have to avoid thinking of this fixed pie of responsibility, which some people do. Some people think there's like 100% responsibility, and if you, if, you, if you put some of the responsibility on the boss, then that means you have to take some responsibility away from the underling, and they don't want to do that. So you have people saying like, well, uh, the guy that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he's responsible, so I guess Truman – Truman couldn't have been because if you say Truman's responsible, that means the guy that dropped the bomb wasn't responsible. Well, no, the libertarian answer is they're both responsible. They're, in the free market, there's a possibility of joint cooperative action, right? Now, yeah. there's a good part to that, which is the division of labor and capitalism. You have a firm of people or people cooperate, and they produce cars or pencils or things that couldn't be done by one person. But mm -hmm. there's also the possibility of cooperation or joint action in crimes or torts, and in those cases, every party should be what I think is called joint and severally responsible. That is 100% responsible. So you have to develop a theory of causality and causation and responsibility, and my view is the best way to do that is not an ad hoc approach. See, Walter Block, uh, Walter Block is right, I believe, to look at a couple of paradigm cases where you should be responsible. So if, yeah. if like a wife wants her husband dead and she hires a killer to kill her husband, then Walter would say she's liable because there's a contract, and Rothbard would say that yeah. too. Or in the mafia case, if the mafia boss coerces someone like his underling, basically there's an implicit threat that I'm telling you to go kill this pizza guy down the street who's not paying his rent, his rent to me, um, yeah. and if you don't do it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cap you. Then yeah. the, so in other words, in the cases of coercion and contract, Walter and Rothbard would say there is responsibility, but that's not a general theory. To mm -hmm. me, those are both examples of a more general idea, and the general idea is that if a person uses another person as a means to achieve an illicit end, then then in that case the the the, the first the indirect actor is jointly liable with the human they chose as a means. So how, how does that extend um, to the area of, uh, of freedom of speech then, right? I mean, is are there limits to freedom of speech? I think, within I, that? yeah, so, so I think, the, first of all, we have to recognize that there is no such thing as freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is a condensed uh, metaphorical way of explaining the outcome of the fact of property rights. 
and the libertarian non-aggression principle. So, and Rothbard says this what he in his Ethics of Liberty, he has a chapter that all human rights are property rights. So, yeah. There really is no such thing as freedom to speech because if there was a freedom to speech, then I could come into your house and say what I wanted, yeah, even yeah. if you told me not to. So clearly, in that case, your property rights would would trump my freedom to speech to speak. Yeah, yeah. And on the other hand, if I'm on my property, I can say whatever the hell I want to, but not because I have the right to freedom of speech, but because it's my property and I'm not committing aggression. So basically, yeah. freedom to speech is just. A recognition that in most cases, saying words does not commit aggression, or it's an exercise of your property rights. So it's just a way of reaffirming property rights. But if you can find a case where speech is used as a means to commit aggression, then of course you have no right to do that. Think, think, of, yeah. think of property rights in general. If I own a knife, I, ha I own the metal, I own the knife, I have the right to control the knife. I have yeah. the right to use the knife. I have the right to prevent you from using my knife without my permission, or I have the right to give you permission, which is called license, to use my knife. I can loan it to you, or I can sell it to you, or I can hire you as my employee and let you use my knife in my restaurant or whatever. right? But just because I own the knife doesn't mean I can murder you with it. <laughs> so property rights were never meant to immunize you from committing aggression. In fact – the very idea of property rights presupposes that every person has a right to control their own property, and therefore no. if I use my property to hurt you, that's impermissible. In fact, if I use anyone's property to hurt you, that's impermissible. So if I steal – if I'm a thief and I steal my neighbor's knife and I stab mm -hmm. you with it, it's still impermissible. So the fact that I'm not permitted to stab you… It's got nothing to do with property rights, with with my limited. It's got. It doesn't imply that my property rights are limited. It implies that you yeah. have property rights, actually, right? So people, the reason I bring this up is because people will often say in the in the intellectual property context when I when I point out that the problem with patent and copyright law is that basically it gives the owner of the copyright or the patent a property right in my property. It gives him the, a veto right in how I use my property. For example, a copyright holder can tell me, Stefan, you can't use your body to sing this song. Stefan, yeah. you, you, can't, you can't use your printer and your fingers and your paper and your computer yeah. to type out this pattern of words on your paper. Uh, yeah. And a patent holder can tell me, Stefan, you cannot go out onto your driveway and adjust your carburetor in your car to get better gas mileage. You, so they yeah. can tell me what not to do with my property. And a, a common response you hear from defenders of IP is they'll say, well, property rights are never limited because you can't punch me in the nose. Or, and I'll say, yeah, but, but, but the problem is if you take your reasoning seriously, you could justify any, any status law whatsoever by just saying… Well, so what? The government's putting you in jail for, for selling cocaine. No one's property rights are limited after all. I mean that's not an argument. You have to have a reason why you can't use your property in this way, and the reason I can't swing my fist to hit you in the nose is because you have a property right in your nose. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you can't just make an analogy between that and me tuning my carburetor of my car in my own driveway because 
you have to show that my doing that is somehow trespassing on your property. That would be the analogy. Well, that that and where you're talking about the 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 carburetor in the car, because there are some some arguments right now out there, or even court cases where people are hacking into computers, or you know, supposedly laws are restricting them from modifying, uh, you know, the internal, like jailbreaking an iPhone, say. Yeah, well, right? well, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't know the Canadian law on this, but in the U.S., we have uh, an extension of copyright law called the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, passed I think in 1998, and mm -hmm. it had what it had what's called anti-circumvention provisions. So what right. it did was it 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 um it actually made it illegal to even sell what they call anti-circumvention technology, which I call a computer. In other words. Any 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 device that you could use to overcome copyright prevention techniques like digital rights management or encryption yep. is is technically illegal, even if you have the right under the copyright law to let's say under copyright law doctrine you have a DVD or a Blu-ray disc. Yep. Now, current law has been interpreted to say that if you make a, a backup copy of that for your own personal use, just for backup purposes. Then that's not that's a violation of copyright. But to do it, yeah. you still have to crack some kind of DRM or some kind of encryption of the seller. That's actually still illegal. And yeah. if you sell someone a piece of technology that can allow them to do something that's legal, but in an illegal way, then you're selling some kind of contraband. Um, well, that would, I mean, but yeah, but that's like saying. Uh, but yeah, that's like saying you can't sell a car because it would be used, might be used for a crime at some point. Or you can't sell a gun because it could be used for a crime. Yeah, it's exactly, yeah, but, it's but exactly it, the same thing. I mean, sh should a gun man manufacturer, back, going back to causality and causation, should a gun manufacturer be liable for every crime that's permitted um, with guns? Now, I would say they actually might be when they sell them to the U.S. military. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty yeah. clear what they're going to do with these things. But if you sell it to an ordinary, peaceful, law-abiding citizen, uh, that to me, their responsibility ends. Legally. Okay. And, and and going back to sh to shareholders, um, it's the same thing. And and let me mention one other thing about shareholders. You don't have to actually have ever given money to a company to be a shareholder. Let, let's say yeah. you, Redmond, own shares in in Apple. Apple Corp. And let's say you paid $100 per share for it. Now, you can sell them to me. So I'm giving you money. So now I'm an Apple shareholder. I have never, right. I've never given a dime to Apple by being a shareholder. I've given them lots of dimes from my iPad and other devices as a customer. Yeah. But the point is, by virtue of being a shareholder, you're not necessarily even aiding and abetting the company. All you have is the right to vote for directors. And the right to receive your pro rata share of the assets of the company upon liquidation. That's basically your only rights. Now, mm -hmm. I don't see why holding those two rights, the right to vote and the right to receive assets, means that you're causally responsible for the torts of employees hired by managers who were appointed by directors who you probably didn't even vote for. So yeah. it, it, there's a very tenuous causal connection between merely being a shareholder and the torts committed by employees hired by managers who were appointed by directors who you may not have even voted for. And that's why I think that in a free market, shareholders would not be responsible, vicariously responsible 
for the actions of, of employees in the first place. And that's why I think that limited liability laws don't give them a privilege that they wouldn't have already had. So yeah. I don't really believe that limited liability laws distort the way the market operates. I think the market is distorted in other ways. It's distorted by intellectual property laws, by pro-union legislation, by minimum wage laws, by regulations, by tax laws, export-import laws. All these things that on the surface seem to be against big business, but they're actually yeah. for big business because big business can afford the handling charge. They can afford to hire the lawyers and the, and the lawyers. Yeah. And what happens is the little companies are just bewildered by this maze of uh, protectionist restrictions, and they cannot compete as well. That's why we have a more oligopolized uh, type of business in the West than we otherwise would have. That's one reason companies may be bigger and more concentrated and less competitive than they would be because of state intervention in the first place. It's not because of incorporation laws in my opinion. That said, I would not oppose the state getting out of the incorporation business and just letting companies form a, a simulacrum of that or a version of that. Just, yeah. just using pure contract, which is what Robert Hessen's argument is. His, his argument is that using pure contracts, you could form the equivalent of a modern corporation. Yeah. Well, I mean, and but that's the thing is that if you're talking about the size, I mean, I, I don't think that, yeah, I, in, a, in a free market, um, I, I think that whole size argument really is, is sort of a straw man yeah. because, you know, I've often found when you actually look what what has happened in the real world, um, as these companies have gotten larger and larger, they inevitably become far more bureaucratic, right? I mean, and Ludwig von Mises sort of touches on that in you know his book bureaucracy right. you know he talks about the bureaucratic nature of the state um you know as companies get too big they become too bureaucratic <laughs> they eventually you know they they lose that competitive edge and their market share gets taken away from them yeah you, know, you look at, at ibm you look at a, a variety of companies well, of you course know, and, of course yeah. and of course intellectual property laws and, and other laws like fda regulations etc help them yeah. maintain their monopoly longer than they would have um, yeah. But um, look, you have you have some left libertarians who think that in a free market, look, they have a different view of value than we Austrians do. They think that there is this, yeah. th there's a bit of the Marxian idea of the labor theory of value that infects their theories, and um, I don't agree with that. I I, I think that um, I don't think the concept of exploitation is coherent, except in the in the Austro libertarian sense. Hans Hermann Hoppe. Um, has a great article where he says that Marx had it like basically almost right, but except right. that he he should have seen that exploitation means basically aggression, right? And if yeah. you understand that, then you can rehabilitate a lot of the class theory of Marx. Um, uh, now, I do agree with like the left libertarians and the mutualists like Kevin Carson that in a free society, number one, we would all be much more prosperous. We'd be so much richer, um, yeah. and and we'd have a more, we'd have more upward labor mobility, upward mobility. There would be more dynamic movement in the market. There'd be yeah, yeah. virtually zero unemployment, and there'd be much more opportunity. It'd be harder to mistreat employees because they could just go across the street and find a new job. They'd be paid much more. They could retire earlier. They have what we call fu money a lot earlier, right? So they'd be working for something they love, um, <laughs> and they'd be more opportunity for self-employment or having uh, uh, sole proprietorships. Outsourcing, yeah. using the internet, etc. I agree with that, but I also agree that there would be 
I disagree with them that there would be less international trade, less um, you know purchasing of goods made overseas or from long distances away, uh, less big companies. I think there'd be more of everything. I think you'd have yeah. more opportunity to do your own thing, to retire early, to form your own company, to change jobs radically, to be treated better as an employee. But you would also have even bigger corporations. They'd be even richer. You'd have more international trade. You'd have more. Yeah. Um, you know, I might buy a kiwi from Australia for a penny. You know. Yeah. I don't think you'd grow everything locally just because you have a free society. Oh no. Well, you know, already. I mean, you know, and I have these discussions with people sometimes. You know, I said there's nothing wrong with me getting <laughs> blueberries from Argentina in February. You know, that's a that's a wonderful thing. It's it makes a, my life I agree better. With you. It, 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 and you and I and Jeff Tucker, for yeah. example, would focus on the wonderful aspect of that, right? We think that that is a wonderful thing that happens uh, amazingly despite the state yeah. trying yeah. to stop it with all their taxes and regulations, whereas the Kevin Carsons would focus on the – the ways the state maybe distorts the market and enables this. So he would say, well, all the roads are free because the government taxes us and gives free roads. So that yeah. artificially subsidizes interstate transportation. And you have the Coast Guard out there protecting the seas from pirates and from drug traffic and from other nations. And so yeah. they, they, they basically say if you just take away the state, it would be almost impossible to get blueberries from Argentina. And I think it's yes, I think it's yeah, the way yeah, around. I think, I think it's actually you'd have more blueberries from Argentina, or they'd be cheaper even. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it, I think they would be cheaper because you know international trade functions. You know, people want to ship things. You know, at the very beginning of civilization, you know, trade is is central to human existence. Of course, and, well, and, and they they admit that, but they think it's international or long distance trade that's a problem, and partly it's I think this is linked in with their hostility towards what they call uh, absentee ownership or owning things from remote distances. But, um, I mean, look, basically their objection comes down to thinking that there's a big shipping overhead that cannot be overcome in the market. And, look, I actually think that – I mean, it's like public schools. I mean, there's lots of reason to believe that the cost of uh, – the cost of uh, medical care in the U.S. and the cost of higher education – has skyrocketed because the government has subsidized it and gotten involved with it, right? You would have good colleges and good high, good 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 education in a free society that would be a lot cheaper if the government had stayed out of it. Um, and, yeah. and I think the same thing is true of transportation. I, I agree that that the government is short circuiting the decision making process. So if 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 Walmart knows that they can put send their trucks on these roads and they don't have to pay an extra fee on these interstates then that affects the business model they come up with yeah. but they're but paying I, but for it in the long run and i think but you're paying for the, yeah and I, and I think the 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 you know the problem with that is that if you look in europe if you look in north america before the state because this is the thing you know private roads existed of course, private of course. transportation of goods and services goods and materials existed at a certain point, you know, leading up into the progressive era, leading up into the you know early 20th century, the government just decided it was going to take it all over. Of course, right? This is it. The Private education existed, and then they said, for various reasons, and of course they would say, "Well, we're doing this for the benefit of overall society, that we are now going to take right. over all roads." Well, and they they have a reason for everything, and and then eventually they 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 spread the myth that they were the origin of these things. 
so yes. that after a time that people can't even imagine these things coming from anything but the state. And they do this with everything, every single thing the government does that is a, a beneficial part of human life yeah. is something that, that was naturally there and that they co-opted. Yeah. Law, yeah. justice, roads, defense. Um, uh, I mean sooner or later they're going to they're gonna say they invented language. <laughs> I, you know, uh, in fact, you know. Well, you, I mean, some people. I mean, you know, some. You know, the Soviet Union probably tried to do that. Well, I mean, you know? don't they do that in Quebec? They, they, and uh, in, in, oh, in yeah. France, they outlaw certain American terms. They have an official council that says what the French language is, and yeah, yeah. Well, no, in 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 Quebec, uh, Quebec is a very statist place, and and that's actually what they've done. It's come to the point where um, they're trying to get certain you know children to rat out other children if they hear if they hear their friends speaking English. On the, on the playground. Yeah. So, so even you something know. as natural as language that, uh, without doubt, predated the state, and it's a naturally thing, a thing that or, uh, originated naturally in human evolution, um, spontaneously, you might say. Even that, the state co-ops. Um, and, and so now you have people who can't even imagine that uh, that you could have uh, private rating agencies that give reputations on safety of cars without the government yeah. or food. So you have to have or drugs. You have to have the FDA. Um, so, uh, over, so the government co-ops everything: um, military, defense, police, police functions, uh, medical yeah, care, and, everything. And because, uh, and what I find, what I find funny too is, um, you know, when you talk about uh, the existence, because I get into some discussions about, you know, because I, I particularly don't uh, really like the environmental movement, right? You know, from a from a from a many different levels, from a philosophical perspective. Um, you know, just their their attitude. You know, their Malthusian misanthropes. A lot of them. Um, just their, you know, yeah, their, yeah. Their there's a, there's on... a famous um, statement by I think it's uh, Paul Ehrlich, one of the environmentalists, and um, well, he's a guru. Yeah, he's a real. Guru and Amory Levins is another one. But but Paul Ehrlich said one time, yeah. someone was suggesting um, um, that we should go nuclear because nuclear power is. Um, would be a great solution because it, it if it wasn't so regulated it would be cheap it's plentiful there's no pollution there's no greenhouse gases nothing and he his his answer was that uh, giving cheap abundant plentiful energy to the human race yeah. would be like giving a machine gun to an idiot child in other yeah. words they they literally do not want us to have plentiful energy and my test for a sincere yeah. environmentalist is whether they're pro nuclear or not and if they're yeah. not then I know they're completely full of uh, a BS. Well, because when I when I when we talk about this issue around property rights, you know, one of the one of the big things that's sort of happening up here in Canada now, um, and I think was happening in the U.S. as well, was this whole pipeline issue, yeah. right? Keystone Pipeline. Yes. And I and I sort of have these discussions because I mean I don't I'm not opposed to fossil fuels right. in any way. I'm not opposed to pipelines. Right. I think you know I I think the cars are great. Right. They've they've made our environment actually far cleaner than it once was. Yes. If you look, of course. The quality of life that was in cities before we had automobiles, um, and uh, you know they, the, and so they'll say, so we're trying to get this. Certain companies are trying to get a pipeline from Alberta to the coast of BC, so we can ship oil to you know China or India, whoever wants to buy it. Because well, obviously, well, the, well, the got, Keystone pipeline, which would come pipeline, which would come all the way down here to Houston, yeah. I believe, where I am. Well, the American government doesn't want our oil, so <laughs> we're sending it to the Chinese. Yeah, well, I, well, well, I think they're gonna, <laughs> I think they're they're gonna cave in on that. We'll see. Yeah. But but they sort of talk about this issue that you know putting this putting the pipeline because because nominally certain Indian bands um, 
or at least on the face of it, certain Indian bands say they're opposed to it. And they say, well, this is they're ramming it through. That's a it's a you know, it's a, a violation of property rights. When I said, well, no, this is this is the initial negotiating position that the Indian bands have taken. Right. And I mean, there's a lot of if you actually look into the, the structure of Indian bands in Canada, there's actually a lot of problems with them because on many Indian reservations in Canada, there is actually no private property. Right. Um, private. I we I could actually. You, you mean private property uh, set up by the by the Indian tribe themselves? Well, the reservation. Yeah. Well, the the reservation system was created by the federal government right. of Canada, and within that reservation system, you know, individual members of the tribe aren't allowed to own. You know, on certain ones, individual members of the tribe aren't allowed to own property. They aren't allowed by the Canadian reservation rules or by the internal rules established by the by the by the reservation itself. Well, yeah, I've got to look more. I mean, into is it this. like a kibbutz? Like 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 is it like the Canadian government says here, you tribe have this territory of land. That's where we're putting you, and then you can do what you want yeah. in there. And then so they they form a kibbutz basically, or. Yeah, but I, I think a lot of the rules were imposed. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have to look deeper into it, but I know there is some issues with property rights. Right. But yeah, I, I do think a lot of it, and I think apparently on some of the reservations they do, it's a mishmash. Right, right, right. It is right. a mishmash. But generally, there are a lot of problems with, with property ownership. Um, and the, the whole band, the way the band council system works, and it's, it's just a whole mess. But, and what I said to these people is I said, look, you know, this is the this is the initial negotiating point of these Indian bands. They said, no, 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 we don't want these uh, pipelines coming through our land. Um, I mean, there's there's a, a, on mixed into this is the fact that there are environmental organizations, sometimes, you know, American ones funneling millions, right. tens of million dollars into these into these groups saying, no, 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 don't let anybody put a pipeline. So, so, so these guys, are, these guys are just being savvy. They're, they're being pawns and they're, they're basically seeing where they can get the most money from. They can hold, hold yeah. out. They're extorting the state and they're extorting everyone else. And they're trying to get money from the environmentalists. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. Well, that's what I mean is that there's a whole, there's a whole mess. Um, I mean, and that's the thing is that I'm sure if they, and this is what it came down to. I'm sure if the, if the oil companies ended up bidding up, they're, you know, bringing up their share yeah. and saying, well, look, you know, we, if you let us put this pipeline through, we'll give you 5% of any oil. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, look, this, of course, shouldn't be a government. This is all screwed up because it's, it's, it's made into a governmental yeah. decision. And mm -hmm. I actually don't think there's a right answer. No matter what the government does, yeah. It's, yeah. it's unjust because, of course, if the, if the project is killed, it seems like it doesn't make sense because in the world we need energy. And yeah. in a free market, somehow you would have it. And if the government approves it, they have to trample on someone's property rights by expropriating their property. Yeah. So it should it should just be done, of course, totally privately. Yeah, well, and, and that's the issue, right? Um, you know, because that's what these people are saying. Because either way, either the either the government is going to ram it through, yes. right? And everybody's going to be like, oh, they violated their rights, or they're going to completely block it. And who knows? Maybe those Indian tribes actually did want an oil pipeline. You know, maybe, like you said, maybe this was a, or maybe, you know, like, well, or, or, why, why? I mean, you know, somehow that oil is going to get out. Either it's going to go through the roads or go through. I mean, there's just these issues around it. Like, you know, by the by, there being the very fact that the government can just stop it, right? I think incentivizes. Yeah, yeah that's, you know, that's what I was going to say. Just by the by, by the fact it. that the government has monopolized. Uh, the right to control this whole field, then yeah. unless they approve it, they're effectively killing it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They, they've set themselves up as the ones who you have to come to us to get permission and all the regulatory permission, et cetera. 
We're the yeah. ones who have to grant permission, and if you don't have it, you can't do it, and we'll use our goons to stop you. So if they don't approve it, it's the same thing as stopping it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, so if they don't approve it, they're clearly distorting the market and doing something bad. But if they do approve yeah. it, they do it in their way, and they take people's property rights away. So there's no good solution when the state's involved. Well, because that's what I mean. If if it wasn't if it wasn't up to the state to approve it, essentially this company would go to the various groups, you know, and say individually would say, okay, I want to, um, you know, put this pipeline oh, yeah, through, of put it in your property. I, I think Walter Block's written on this. Can I negotiate? Yeah, can I can negotiate with you? Because now you get these sort of spectacles um, where, you know, the the environmental groups will fly in stakeholders yes. from. Around the yes. world, I mean, they'll have somebody come up from, you know, they'll somebody have somebody come up from the uh, the Seychelles Islands or yeah. something, you know, and or they'll have somebody come from uh, rural China, yeah. and say you can't let this pipeline yeah. go through because I live in rural China or somebody from out. They'll get somebody who's, well, you know, if this pipeline goes through, more greenhouse gases will be created, and therefore the you know in a hundred years the though you know, the, well, the of seas course, will rise you know, the, the, by six inches and they, they should, they should call them uh, state holders because the the entire the entire concept of stakeholder is a statist concept i mean you know in the old days there was no such thing as a stakeholder there was a stockholder or a shareholder yeah. and you either have a property right or you don't or a contract or you don't or you're 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 affected by a tort of someone or you're not but now you yeah. have this nebulous concept of stakeholders and that's because we have this notion of we're a democracy and everyone's got to say so and property rights aren't absolute and they're all basically subject to vote of the community and all this kind of nonsense. Well, this is but this is the way they've done that I see is is with the concept of uh, externalities, right? Suddenly all of a sudden there's all these externalities yeah. that aren't yeah. dealt with by the free market yeah. and oh well we need the state to we need the state to intervene and then they'll say well the the externality of carbon dioxide is is uh, you know, violating my rights yeah. because the, you know, the earth has warmed by 0.5 degrees in the last 10 years yeah. and somehow my life is, is negatively impacted by that, you know. And, well, I mean, I think that everything has been screwed up, of course, by the state involvement. Of course, in yeah. a free market, you would have more externalities being internalized because you would be liable yeah. if you committed a tort by polluting, et cetera. Uh, yeah. Now, in terms of global warming, I think it's primarily just junk science masquerading, uh, you know, by statists who want to, some excuse for the government to come in and regulate things. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, Why? Well, yeah, I agree with you. In my opinion, we're in an interglacial period. The world will start cooling down someday, and hopefully by that time we'll have technology to stop it. Um, yeah. uh, I certainly, I certainly don't want to be living under two kilometers of ice. Yeah, but in, but in the meantime, you know, if, if if the cooling starts in a thousand years, and in the next two hundred years we have a gradual rise in temperature, you know, that's probably good, especially for you guys. Yeah. Um, oh no, no warm, warm temperatures have been a boon to mankind, to humankind. You know, increased crop growth, increased tree growth. I mean, it's it's a wonderful thing. Even CO two. At the, I mean, we, this is off topic, but you know, at the at the end of the last ice age, we were very close to being in a real global catastrophe because the CO two levels were so yeah, low. Yeah, yeah. Right. It was virtually on the point of plant starvation. Well, that's one reason um, in the in the dinosaur age you had all these huge plants is because we had we had more carbon dioxide and it was a better environment for plants. It's good. Yeah. Um, and and sort of just to touch back on the whole corporation issue. Um, I was wondering if there might be a case for for promoting individual freedom through 
you know, people essentially incorporating themselves to sort of, you know, gain the gain these gain these these sort of benefits, you know, because like if I am working for, um, you know, personally, if I don't sign up like in Canada, I can I can work as a contractor. I don't pay a lot of taxes. I can create my own corporation and then work for that corporation. Yes. Right. And only pay myself. You know, I you know, I can I can basically let's say I. I start a corporation, I pay, you know, I get, I get a contract, the corporation gets a million dollars and I only pay myself $10,000. Yes. You know, like it's, it's sort of funny. Okay. So, um, well, first of all, you, you might be interested. There's actually a science fiction trilogy, I think, uh, right. and the first one's called the incorporated man by, I think it's Danny and Itan Collins. I read it a couple of years ago. It's, it's not a great book, but it's interesting. And it's a, it's about a future society where everyone's incorporated and they can sell shares of themselves, and it's sort of a it's sort of a bizarre left libertarian anti capitalist yet pro capitalist thing. It's weird. In any case, um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how corporations work, um, and this factors into the reason some people are hostile to the idea of limited liability. They they don't quite understand what it does. They think it does more than it does. For example, mm -hmm. they think it it they think it immunizes people as human beings. Who are say employees of the company by virtue of limited liability law, but it doesn't. Um, so if you are a sole proprietor like you're talking about and you incorporate, um, well, as a practical matter, first of all, whenever you sign, the only time that limited liability could help you there is in contracts because in torts, right. if the only way there's going to be a tort is if you commit it. So you're committing it as a person, as a human being who's a, say an employee of or whatever of this corporation. So the only reason they would sue the corporation for your liability is that they first sue you. They have to sue you first. So the corporation yeah. is vicariously responsible for you. So you're always liable if you perform a tort. Like let's say you incorporate and you have a delivery business, and you're one guy, and you're driving your own truck that's owned by your corporation, which you own all the shares in, and you're driving down the road and you negligently hit someone. They're still going to sue you as the negligent human being who negligently committed a tort. Yeah. They're going to sue your corporation too as being jointly responsible with you, and then they're going to go to your insurer and whatever. But it doesn't help you at all. You can just not. Have yeah, a well, I, I just, I just meant in terms of freeing ourselves from the grasp yeah. of the state. Yeah, no. So, so in the example like you gave, limiting, limiting, limiting taxation, right, right. So, so limiting. So let, let, know, let me let me give you my. This is not legal advice. So, but I will say, <laughs> I thought about this myself, and <clears throat> my just general notion of this. Um, yeah. In the case you described, I think basically it's tax evasion. Uh, now, yeah. you may be able to get away with it, and I'm all for people well, getting well, away with tax evasion. Because but... everybody's complaining about, you know, Warren Buffett, I'll just let me just quickly touch there. Because Warren, Warren Buffett, Buffett, there's this whole Buffett rule because Buffett pays less taxes than his secretary. No, le and less course, percentage, not less taxes, I'm well, sure. Well, yeah, no, but, but it turns out that because, and the whole argument is, well, when you actually look into it, he actually pays himself only about a hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, that's a different so. issue. Okay, so that's a different issue. Um, oh, and and so yeah. So, but this is what I'm talking about. Like in terms of me as an as an individual, if I set up a corporation yes. and I, I my corporation and I'm an you know I'm employed yes. by the corporation, my corporation brings in a million dollars, and then I only pay myself yes. ten twenty thousand dollars that year. Yeah, that's tax evasion because so so let's say you set up the corporation in one of the islands because they have no corporate income tax or you put the corporation somewhere where there's no corporate income tax because otherwise it, 
you know, you're going to get taxed on one side or the other. If you leave the money in the corporation and it's in the U.S., the corporation is going to pay corporate income tax. Right. right. So you want to put it somewhere where there's no corporate income tax. So the only way that helps you is if you don't take the money out as a salary. So, mm -hmm. so let's say a million dollars goes into this corporation, and let's say you're the only owner and you're the only employee, and the corporation is being paid for the work that you're doing. Right. Right. I mean, I don't know why they're being paid otherwise. So we have to assume that. So, so <laughs> this is all legal so far. So the so your your customer is or your your you know is paying a million dollars to your corporation. You're putting it into a bank account in the Cayman Islands, where your corporation is chartered, and you're the owner of that corporation. Now, what you're supposed to do is pay yourself a million dollar salary, or maybe a million dollars minus a little bit of overhead for the corporation. But the corporation basically has almost no expenses. So yeah. the corporation should be paying you a fair market value for your services. Now, the fair market value is basically a million dollars because the only reason they got the money is because you performed the service. If you pay yourself $10,000 and you leave $990,000 in your bank account and it starts growing over there, that's a mm -hmm. way of evading the income tax you would have had to pay on the other $990,000. Okay? Yeah, but of course, isn't, isn't, it, isn't it morally valid to evade as many taxes as possible? Absolutely. I think it's completely <laughs> morally valid. I just think it's, it's increasingly risky in the world. But yet, of course, yeah, of course tax evasion is not only morally valid, it's heroic. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah, but it's 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 hard to do nowadays. So, and I don't think there's any easy tricks that are that you can do with corporations that um, um, that are, are are that are not very risky. Well, it's but it's just kind of funny because um, I only bring it up because a lot of times now there's these issues. Uh, you know, you hear about how you too, you know, the band. Yes. It's almost no taxes, right? They just they just keep shifting their money around so they can pay as little taxes. Probably that's because a lot of their income comes from copyright and intellectual property royalties, and because uh, that's classified by the state as an intangible good, then hmm. it doesn't have a location, and so you have more flexibility about where you declare. Apple does something similar with some of their licensing. They have a it's Luxembourg or some little country where they have some little corporation and they funnel all their royalties through there because there's a different yeah. tax. And you can, that's called tax avoidance, not tax evasion. That's actually legal, taking advantage of legal loopholes. But of okay. course, in a free market, you wouldn't have taxes in the first place and you wouldn't have intellectual property. <laughs> so you wouldn't have these weird games you can play. Um, and, and of course, there's the whole phenomena of um, what's it called? Um, companies. Um, when you have separate divisions in a big company, let's say IBM, mm -hmm. Ford, or even Apple, and you have a, a division in Australia and one in Canada and one in U.S. and one in China, you have to make a decision about how much this division charges this division um, yeah. internally for their sales, but it's not a real market transaction. So that's, that's, called, well, that's, trans yeah. that's called transfer pricing, and you can manipulate that so that you reduce or increase the profit on this unit or this unit in this country, and so naturally what you want to do is you want to fudge the numbers or push the numbers yeah. so that the profits are increased in the regime with lower taxes, but there's limits to how much you can do, and that's called transfer pricing issues. Well, that's, but that's an interesting point because that feeds into um, you know, the economic, uh, the socialist calculation debate, yes. right? right? Um, because that's, of course, the funny thing about, about uh, companies that exist within the private sector. Yes. 
and and produce goods competitively and are able to to figure out market prices for their own internal once they get to a certain size they actually can't even price their own yeah and this and this is when you're talking about corporations and monopolies and that sort of thing when you're talking about left libertarian critiques um you know essentially a monopoly can't exist in the free market it must be created by the state right yeah because almost immediately if if something had a true monopoly you know, it would probably go bankrupt the next day because it, you know, they really wouldn't know how to do anything. They wouldn't know how to price anything. You need competition in order to actually be able to price your goods and your services yes. and, and these things, right? Well, th- th- there's lots of great writing on all the flaws in anti- antitrust theory, for example, by uh, yeah. by um, uh, Tom DiLorenzo and uh, D.T. Armentano and Murray Rothbard. Um, but Rothbard himself and Peter Klein have some great articles on uh, applying the calculation argument to the private firm size, and I think they call it the upper limit of the firm. So yeah. sort of Ronald Coase had some insights about why firms arise in the first place, and the idea is that if you have – instead of everyone being a, an isolated sole proprietor having contracts with everyone else, outsourcing basically, I mean he mm-hmm. might be surprised at what's going on now because – it's getting more and more possible to do that. But there are transaction costs that you have to overcome. And if you have a firm by which he was thinking of employees under a certain control with pre-existing uh, contractual relationships, then you can overcome some of those transaction costs. And that's why you have firms or corporations mm-hmm. or partnerships or whatever. Yeah. So the reason you have firms at all is because of transaction costs, according to Coase. Um, I'm not actually so sure that's a rigorous idea, and as we've seen in the internet age, I don't know if there's a clear distinction in libertarian theory or even in economic theory between me paying FedEx to deliver something and me having a mail department in my company. I don't know if there's a rigorous distinction, but in any case, the theory has always been why do we have firms that arise in the first place, and the idea is to overcome transaction costs. Uh, I think there's a different explanation, but let that pass. But yeah. then the other question is, is there an upper limit to the firm? In other words, is there a sweet spot or a range that you're going to have firms that are not too small because they're not quite effect efficient because they don't overcome these transaction costs or right. achieve other efficiencies? Uh, but can they get infinitely big? And Rothbard and Peter Klein would say that, just like you said, at a certain yeah. point they get so big that they have internal departments that are just engaging in what Mises would call playing market. They're having fake yeah. trades with each other. And they don't really know what to price these things at. Um, now, they can look at similar things in the outside market and have accountants come in, and they have their own reasons to try to do it accurately. But at a certain point, it's going to become less and less accurate and more and more of a guess. What's going mm-hmm. – in, in a free market, you would have a natural limit to the size of the firm for these reasons and also for other reasons, yeah. just for bureaucracy and for um, um, uh Free rider issues. I mean, you know, if you and I have a partnership, each one of us has an incentive to go to lunch for a customer and just blow out the bill because we, if I go to lunch and I spend $500 on the lunch, I only suffer 250 of it because you split the cost with me, right? Yeah. But once you get beyond two people, it gets even worse. So you have bureaucracy, you have layers, you have inefficiency, and you have the calculation problem, which is an upper limit to the firm. Um, I feel yeah. Good. And- yeah, and, and for sure. And that's and that's the problem with I mean, and that's the that's what I find beneficial about private private organizations versus the state 
you know, the, the benefit of, of the private organizations is that they actually can go bankrupt. Yes. Right. They and the problem with the state and we're seeing it right. We're witnessing it right well, now. States apparently they, can, too. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though, right? They, well, hopefully they that's hopefully they can. Yeah. Well, but except except when the corporations go bankrupt, they're broken up, they're sold off. The people can go and get, you know, and when a corporation goes bankrupt, um, it doesn't take down the entire economy with it. Right. Whereas what we're seeing now and, you know, we're seeing the, in the United States and the Western world, um, these governments are, you know, because they have the ability to tax, essentially, yes. you know, no, they have, they have, they've sort of legitimized the use of force for themselves. Oh, yeah, to... they, they've wormed their way into everything. Yeah, I agree. So when they fail, it's, it's, a, it's a catastrophe. And, and then they use that also it, as an excuse to regulate companies with, with this thing called too big to fail, right? And so yeah. the, the, the federal government basically bailed out GM and, and, and AIG in the U.S. In the, in the collapse a couple of years ago because they're so big and they're too big to fail. Um, now, one reason they may be too big to fail is because the government has made them artificially large and artificially um, a key part of the economy. When in the free market, they wouldn't be so key. And you know, well, that that and and this is the and this is the point too. I'm I when when we're talking about sizes and whatnot, and we're looking at today's world as as being you know when we're talking about the size of corporations, you know people do need to realize that for the past eighty years, there's been a very specific drive on the part of government to centralize companies, to make companies bigger. So in order, you know, and when when the when the government becomes more bureaucratic, they encourage firms to become more bureaucratic. I think, that, I think, that's, I think that's right, especially when you have because, this revolving door between big industry and the government, yeah. and you have people going back and forth between boards of directorships of the large yeah. companies and serving in the Obama administration and the, and the, and the various regulatory agencies. I agree completely. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, there was an active move to cartelize things, right? There was the, you know, at, during World War One, there was a cartelization of the oil industry. Um, you know, you here in Canada as well. I mean, you know, the the government the government actually wants to deal with other large organizations that are like itself because they can talk to each other. I think right? that's a fair point. Yeah. You know, yeah. they they don't. You know, governments don't know what to do with small little companies. You know, they they sort of ignore them, yeah, right? Because they're, they're too hard. They're too hard to regulate and manage and keep track of. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, that's a really good point. Yeah, because the thing is, when the when the government creates an edict and creates a regulation, they want the companies to be able to um, to be able to respond and fill out all the right forms and dot all the i's and cross all the t's and and this is what Peter Schiff talks about. He says, you know, if if I had tried the company I run today, if I was trying to start it today, I would not be able to because I could not afford to comply with all the regulations. You know well, yeah, I mean? I, 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 I mean, even in the in the uh, in the high tech area, you have, uh, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs readily admit years ago, decades ago about how they, quote, stole ideas. And Bill Gates is saying, you know, the software, if, if software patents had been prevalent back then, you know, maybe Microsoft wouldn't have even got off the ground. But now yep. they're one of the worst patent, software patent, wants to get a troll, uh, but abusers because, and their their whole model is built on it. I mean, the government is schizophrenic in that they they have policies that give rise to basically monopolies or oligopolies, yep. like yep. Microsoft, for example, which couldn't have had their power without government copyright. Um, and, mm -hmm. and other large companies, GM, et cetera, um, that rose to prominence and d dominance in an oligopolistic way because of pro-union legislation, minimum wage laws, et cetera. And then the government comes in and uses that ex as an excuse to regulate them. 
So the government's yeah. always like they're granting monopolies subtly and indirectly and invisibly, and then they come in as the rescuer to rescue us from the calamity that they've caused, <laughs> and it just entrenches their power. Yeah, but also I the thing I see about you know because a lot of people have been complaining about Microsoft for a long time, but at the same time you know like Microsoft. In a lot of ways, when they originally came out, there were a lot of comp competing operating systems. I mean, I remember what it was like. You know, right. there were there was Amiga, right. there were Tandys, yep. Commodore 64s. There were a variety. It Crash was actually 80s, we called them, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, they, they were competing against other organizations for market share. Essentially, you know, they sort of became, um, you know, in a way, like I like to call it, the internal combustion engine of the of the uh, of the computer age, right? And I, and I don't I don't I don't see that Microsoft had a lot of government grants of monopoly to to get the market share on operating system that it did. And now that the that the computer industry is beginning to mature. I mean, it's only been 20, 30 right. years since since, you know, like um and and that's the same thing with Standard Oil, right? Standard Oil at one point had a very large market share, and by the time they were actually broken up, you know, as the as the oil industry matured and grew and matured, their market share got eaten away and eaten away and eaten away. And now, you know, with Microsoft, um, you know, if you look at OSs, uh, you know, there's uh, Apple is starting to take a larger market share every year. Um, you know, there are some people now who don't, you know, it's come to the point where you don't even need a computer. You can just do almost everything you need to do on your smartphone. So you've got various different OSs running on those smartphones, you know the, and it was the same way with the with the uh, Internet Explorer, right? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. No, I agree completely. You know, it's, it's, the, it's exactly the same thing. Is that, you know, this was such a new industry that of course, of course one one in, one one you know one organization was going to have a large market share, and I think this is the this is the point that when you're talking about this whole monopoly, it's like the idea of saying that Mike Tyson has monopoly on being Mike Tyson. You know, and, and the state should force him to fight more, you know, and and this was the thing with with Internet Explorer. Everybody was complaining that, oh, Internet Explorer, it's a monopoly there. Well, yeah, duh, because it's a brand new industry. I mean, you know, I think that in the, in, the, in the case of, say, Microsoft, I think that um, um, even with the extra help the government gave it with with copyright law, yeah. you're right. Even if they you say they had a monopoly for 20 years, it's now it's starting to fade. I mean, yeah. you didn't need the, the government suit seven years ago. Whatever looks antiquated, and I was like, "What are you talking about?" Uh, now they're under assault by Apple and others. But the point, my point is, if the the way to solve the the alleged monopoly they had was don't give them monopoly rights, which is called copyrights. And if they didn't have that, um, and Apple's coming to as a competitor, but it's it's a very small market. You have Apple, and Microsoft, and a couple of others. You don't have hundreds of these things because of. Because yeah. Apple can use copyright to monopolize the industry. I would say the clearest example of a recent real natural monopoly that is not because of the state would be Google. Google came into a position of extreme dominance in searching, and that's just a natural effect. I mean you want to go to the guy that's got the most searches, and so it's like a natural feedback effect, kind of like Facebook. Facebook has got all – You know, if you're going to join a network, you're going to go to the one everyone else is in, so there's network effects, right? But, yeah. but but the thing about these alleged monopolies is they're ephemeral. I mean, you know, Google's dominance could collapse at any day, and so could Facebook's, especially. 
because there's yeah. nothing stopping anyone else from competing with it. Well, and th- and this is the thing too with the um, you know, the with you know, with uh, browsers and whatnot. And this is the thing is that you know if you look at you know in 1994, you know it was pretty much only Internet Explorer or not even I don't know if it, I didn't I don't even remember when I started using Internet Explorer, but you know let's say. 1996, 97, 98, and, you know, they had a very large market share. But if you look at it today, it's Chrome, Firefox, yeah. you know, Internet Explorer is actually quite small, Opera. And then you got the crazy guys who are programming their own browsers, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, on Ubuntu and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And what I think is funny is that I've actually, you know, I've actually looked into these Ubuntu and, and these sorts of things. And, you know, there's actually a benefit to having, you know, it's like it's like people working on their car, you know. Some people like to work on their car. Some people have no idea right. whether they can work on their car. And and when I liken it to the internal combustion engine, I mean, the in, the internal combustion engine actually beat out electrical engines. There yeah. were electric cars. Right. People don't even, people, when you look into the history of, you know, engines and, and motivators for automobiles, electric cars were actually right at the beginning. Yeah, I think, I think of, like New York City, I heard like a hundred years ago, had more electric cars than internal combustion at one point in time yeah edison edison actually tried to promote you know right. and, and this is this is the problem i see with when you know touching back i mean i think we're going to wrap this up in a few minutes but you know when you talk about you know the environmental movement and you know i you hear these complaints like you know gm and the government shut down the electric car and they're they're keeping us from this wonderful thing that will keep you know make everybody happy and solve everybody's problems but you know there's there's there is the case that the internal combustion engine is actually a superior product than the electric. Yeah, for, for, for now, for now it is. I agree. For now it is, and you know, and and if if it actually wasn't for the government interfering so much, and this is a funny thing, like I, you know, they talk about, um, and and when we're talking about government effects, when they say, well, there needs to be more innovation in the automobile market, they'll say there's not enough innovation. The government has to come in and step in and, and do it. Now, I would argue that there's actually far less intervention innovation in the automobile market because government has laid on so many regulations. Yeah. Right. Um, there's no there's virtually no incentive for any company to try to build, say, a carbon fiber car. Right. Because. Can you imagine trying to get that through the 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 regulatory process? True. I mean, the, the very fact that there's these regulations incentivizes people to just go, work to the regulations. Yeah, the, the, the right. government regulations distort technology in so many ways. I was just reading the other day that um, you know the Hindenburg disaster, you know, the big blimp, the Zeppelin yeah. that blew up over New Jersey um, because they used, I guess, hydrogen instead of helium, or do I have that backwards? Yeah. In any case, yeah, no, it's hydrogen instead of helium. And yeah. one reason was the U.S. government had had apparently um, blocked sales of hydrogen for some military or helium. economic yeah. purpose to, to to Germany or whatever. So they had no choice. So if the governments hadn't been distorting the market, they would have used the safer fuel or the safer lifting agent. Um, but they couldn't, and this happens all the time. I mean, you have actually patents, for example, um, block the implementation of safety devices in cars because mm-hmm. you have to get someone's permission to do it. And yeah. um, that means that some cars right now are doing without safety devices that they otherwise could use because they can't get permission of some patent holder. Oh, yeah. And then on, and then on top of that, the government dictates that all cars must have a government-approved safety yes. device 
like the airbag, which, you know, there's a fair amount of evidence that airbags actually kill a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I suspect that in a natural free market, airbags would arise when the time is right and when people are convinced of it in a certain way. Right, but the government mm. mandates it, and you're right. It's, it's, it could cause more deaths than it than it saves. Well, well, and, and this is what I mean is that you know just just to touch on the government intervention, uh, and if you want to look at real world examples of this or or sort of counterfactuals, imagine if in 1987 the government had declared that it was in the national interest um, for the computer market to be heavily regulated in order to you know, standardize the quality that Americans got for their computers and all these sorts of different things, right? Because they didn't realize, you know, at that point, they didn't realize how large it was going to be part of the market. Um, imagine if they said, okay, computers must have a minimum of 64 megabytes of RAM, or they must have a, a, a you know, a 10 megabyte uh, yeah. or a 20 megabyte hard drive or something like that. What you would have had, you would have had an industry that instead of competing to provide better products, would have immediately started dictating you know creating products that met the government standards yep. right and then every and then instead of new companies coming out and saying okay i'm going to provide a better product you would have lobbyists lobbying the government to improve the clock speed on on you know on uh, motherboards or something like that you said you know well we need we need to we need to have a government study into clock speeds on on computer motherboards because that's i mean that's if you look in the if you look in the automobile industry that's what happens they have government studies into the, what the speed limit should be on on you know should we put limiters into cars right yeah yeah you know? so so basically moore's law would go from doubling processing power every 18 months to like you know Every eighteen months, processing power increases by one percent. <laughs> the curve would go like this, real flat, you know. Well, if, if it ever did, right? I mean, because that's the thing, and and what I think now is is what we see a lot of time is the government essentially just trying to play catch up, right? Of course, they're ex post facto trying to get in there and regulate. They're trying to figure out as many ways as they can to regulate the internet, to regulate communication, to regulate, you know, because when you look at radio first came out. When radio first, I mean, you know, when you go back to the printing press, like we were talking about the last time we had this this discussion, talking about, um, you know, copyright, the right to copy, right? Radio comes out and then, oh, well, we have to regulate radio. We have to give out special licenses right. for only, so only certain people. Television, you know, only certain television shows. There's actually a great talk that's on Mises uh, USA talking about how, why there's so many bad shows came out in the 60s, because it was actually because of government intervention. Um, you know, and now, you know, um, and now when you look at the internet overnight, it's completely upending this sort of this, this structure of society of, of how communications were managed and ex post facto, the government is now trying to play catch up. They're trying to figure out how are we going to regulate this thing? How are we going to, yeah. how are we going to justify us shutting down a, a website of somebody who puts ideas out there that we don't like because they were already doing that in the in the television field in the field of radio simply by licensing but i think right? this, it's good basically the government is slow and they're always going to be playing catch up and i think that's good is that the, the market has a chance to evolve too quickly for the government to be aware of what's going on and i think that's what happened with the internet yeah. 
the internet arose and the government didn't realize what a huge threat the internet has turned out to be to it because this is the strongest you know engine that humanity's ever had to fight government oppression and that's why the yeah. government's now trying to belatedly come in and regulate it but i think by the time they actually get in the gear to do it it's going to be too late um we can only well, hope well this is the issue yeah i mean this is the issue right now we have a situation where you know the because of government regulations and you know because of like the, you know the manufacturing in the US has industry in the, in Canada to some extent has has declined i believe in in part because of inflation because of government regulation of the money supply right i mean right there i mean at the core of our economy is that you know is the government uh, regulation of our money supply but with the internet so much business is now being done on it and so much economic development happens on it it's very hard for them to shut it down completely like even in China, you know, my friend works over there often in three months, and even he can get a VPN in China, right? The government just lets him do it because they know if they want him to come in there and do business, they have to let him have a VPN, right? So everybody who works at his company, you know, everybody who works in his office who is Chinese actually has access access to this VPN and, and, and can surf the net, basically getting around the Great Firewall. Well, I, I've got a friend who who's over there now, an American friend, and. Every every other morning, he asked me to email him in an email the text of some 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 website that's censored by the Chinese government. Ah. So he just gets his friends to email it to him. I mean, people are going to find ways around this stuff. This is the great thing about information and technology and the internet having this mm -hmm. and digital information. It's great. So I'm hopeful they can't stop it. By the way, speaking of of um, uh, TV and all this. There's a post you should look up on my uh, C4SIF site. I posted a couple of years ago. It's about how the patent system caused Hollywood to exist. In other words, ah. there's a huge patent brouhaha in New York City where it was like the, the whole movie industry was emerging, and they moved out west to escape these patent battles or something like that. It's, it's a totally convoluted thing, but you can see how our entire culture, not just our innovative and business world, but our culture is so distorted by government intervention, especially in the form of copyright and patent. Uh, there's no yeah. telling what it would look like otherwise, but Hollywood might not even exist if it weren't for patent. Oh uh, yeah, because it was something to do with the with the patents on the um, projector or something or projectors. yeah yeah and yeah well and I mean even even uh, you know Jeff Tucker he had a great piece uh, he was talking about the way that um, it turned out that the Wright brothers actually hampered yeah, aviation for yes. <laughs> for many yes. years in America because yes. they what they did was they they flew and then they ran out and got all the patents yes. and then stopped anybody yes. else from making a plane for like 50 yes. years yes it's, it's, know, there's so. lots of examples like that um uh, and in the field of fashion for example um the reason you see this bizarre phenomenon which we, we're used to now of like uh if you buy a louis vuitton purse it's got the louis vuitton trademark all over it Right. Right. I mean, if I buy a Ford car, I'm not buying it because there's the word Ford splashed all over it everywhere. It's just because I like the design and the functionality. But in the in yeah. the in the fashion industry, there's there's not a really easy way to use copyright or patent. So there's just free market and competition. There's no yeah. way for the manufacturers to use patent or copyright to stop their competition. Of course, every manufacturer wants to go to the government for a legal way to stop competition. So what they did was they used trademark law. So they basically embed their trademark symbols into yeah. the clothes and the jewelry and the purses so that they can now block a competitor from making a similar item because it would be a trademark infringement. 
So mm-hmm. you, if you didn't have trademark law and copyright and patent law, you might not have ever had this bizarre phenomenon of buying a Louis Vuitton purse that has Louis Vuitton <laughs> LV slapped all over as part of the design. It's just the most bizarre thing. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting at the same time. But uh, listen, we've been going for a while here. Um, I want to thank you again. Um, I think the next time I had another other questions uh, I want to talk about. Uh, I think the next time we talk, we'll talk about sort of open borders sure. and immigration. Be happy to. Want to discuss those ideas, um, you know, and because uh, I think there's a lot of interesting, you know, talk around that, um, passports, these sorts of things. And then as well, I want to encourage everybody who's watched to check out Mises Canada. Um, sort of, I'd like to let everybody know that we launched the Toronto Austrian Scholars Conference, and that's going to be in, uh, I believe, October 5th and 6th of uh, 2012. Um, we're having Walter Block. Uh, work on that with us. Uh, Prejdrag Ratchik and uh, Dave Howden are, are, are going to be helping us to, uh, to review papers. Uh, we've already got a couple people who have pledged to come. And uh, I hope, uh, hope you can make it out and hope maybe you can promote it to some of your friends in academia who uh, might think this would be an interesting thing. And then what, uh, what are you doing? What's your, what's your latest bag that uh, you're up to? I'm working on an IP article uh, with Hoppe, Hans-Hermann Hoppe, for um, a, German, a German language version for circulation in the German media to try to take advantage of this, uh, the, the rise of the pirate party in Germany uh, yeah. and to try to set the pirate party people straight on exactly how they should approach the IP issue intellectually. Um, so do, working on that, working on some other writing projects, and also uh, my, my law practice. And I, actually, I've recently become an arbitrator for this brand new private anarcho-capitalist arbitration service called Judge.me. So I would encourage everyone okay. to go look at Judge.me. Okay. It's a fantastic idea by this guy in, uh, uh, I think he's Flemish um, or, or, or in Belgium, and uh, it's a fantastic yeah, idea. Yeah. So. Um, well, and, and that's the thing. I, well, I mean, we could just talk for hours, but that's the thing. If you look at, uh, I mean, private arbitration goes on all the time, yes. you know, and, and and what I think is funny, like if you look in, especially in religious communities, um, you know, uh, if, if two people are having a problem, they'll often go to their priest first. Of course, you know, of course. If you're Catholic, of course, you've got this, you've got this situation where, um, you know, uh, you've got within a Jewish community or within a Muslim community. They, they they sort they 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 will often sometimes even if they have business disputes they'll go to their yes. religious figurehead and, and work it out with, with them first. Yes, yeah, so I advised uh, someone just two weeks ago with a, who had a copyright dispute. They're both Catholics, and at the meeting, um, one of the parties brought his priest. Nice, seriously, because you know there's a moral aspect to this too. It's like how can we as fellow Catholics with this kind of Catholic publishing mission or whatever it was. Uh, what's the right thing to do, or the right way to resolve this dispute? So, yeah, he brought his priest yeah. instead of his lawyer. Oh, that's that's, that's actually a really good thing. Yeah, I think. I, I think, think it the, is too. The, so you're right. This happens yeah. all the time, formally and informally. And um, it so check out Judge.me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I will check that out, and, and maybe we can do a talk about it later on. Okay. Thanks again, Stefan. Um, we'll we'll speak soon. Thanks, Robin.